Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited for this show today. This is our Ask Us Anything show. So our listeners submitted questions about anything quilting related, and I am answering them all. And some of your questions were hard. I really had to put my thinking cap on. So I hope you find this show informative and fun. We have a lot to get through today, so let's just dive right on in. So this first question is from Melanie Hayes, and she says, I recently made my first landscape quilt. It was also one of my first wall hangings. The online instructor taught us how to finish off the quilt by using a technique called facing. This gave the wall hanging an art quilt feel by having no traditional binding like you see on most quilts. In fact, I would call the look frameless. It was so cool and easy to do, and the look was very clean and minimalistic. I haven't noticed this option on many small quilts before. Is this something that could be used on larger quilts? Are there any pros and cons to this method? I would love any thoughts on the subject. Thanks for your question, Melanie. So for those who don't know what facing is, it is a way to finish the raw edges of a quilt without adding the frame that a traditional binding does. It's actually done in a very similar method to how binding is done, but instead it pulls the added strips to the back of the quilt so you don't see them on the front. Facing is actually a really popular way to finish art and landscape quilts, and it's also very popular in the modern quilt world because it allows the design of the quilt to extend to the edge. So that design takes center stage and almost looks like it's floating on the quilt. Now, whether you choose to add binding versus facing to a quilt is just a matter of preference. And either method works on any size quilt. Although I do usually see facing and more wall size quilts. I personally love the look that binding brings to my projects. And I usually choose a binding with a bold color or something like a stripe. Uh, And so that binding becomes a part of the quilt's style and design for me. Um, I have also seen some quilters choose a binding that matches the background of the quilt. So while it's done in a traditional binding method, it blends in and gives that frameless look that facing can. Um, But that's, of course, not always possible with an art or landscape quilt, which is why facing sometimes works better. And depending on the method you choose for facing, uh, it can also add corner triangles for hanging a quilt at the same time. Uh, That's the method we show on our website, and it really makes it easy to finish a quilt and just hang it right away. I think the only downside to choosing a facing 
is that it does need to be finished by hand. Uh, so if you are a person that prefers to machine stitch your binding down, uh, this method wouldn't necessarily work for that. Um, I also do think facing has a few extra steps than binding does. Um, so to me, it takes a little bit longer, but if that's the look you want, it is worth the effort. Uh, for anyone interested, I will link to the facing video in our show notes so that you can kind of see what we're talking about and learn how to do it. Okay, we have another binding question from Morgan Henderson. She says, please help. I struggle so hard with binding. I can create binding with no issues as well as attach it with crisp mitered corners, but I cannot connect the two binding ends to finish attaching the binding to the front of the quilt to save my life. Due to this, I have so many UFOs just waiting to have their binding joined correctly. Please share any tips or tricks you have. So Morgan, uh, it seems like you're being a little hard on yourself. Um, it sounds like you can make the binding no problem. You attach it to the quilt. You get great mitered corners. Uh, that's amazing. And that is better than what I can do sometimes. <laughs> My only advice uh, I can give for joining the binding is that practice makes perfect. So dive into that pile of UFOs and get binding. We have a great tutorial online for how to join binding with a continuous seam, which I will link to in the show notes. Um, and I will truthfully say that me and uh, other members of our staff have to watch this video every time we bind to just figure out how to do the method. <laughs> so don't feel bad if it takes you a few tries to get the hang of it, or you need to watch that video multiple times too. Um, and honestly, if it's not perfect where the two binding ends come together, I bet you're the only person who will notice. Uh, mine don't always come out the best and I don't even think about it. Um, and years later when I'm using the quilts, I, I wouldn't even remember where those joins are. So don't let that one little step keep you from finishing and enjoying your quilts. Okay, this next question is from Barbara, Barbara Vandenberg. She says, I am going on my first quilt retreat. What should I bring? I always have several projects going on at once, so the thought of only bringing one and working on it the entire three days sounds boring. But I don't want to overpack and be unproductive because I have too many things. So I love this question, Barbara. It really is hard to get the right balance between bringing enough to work on and bringing too much. So I use, usually suggest to people that they bring three to four projects um, and then two to three of those being just general piecing projects and one being a handwork project. So let me explain a little more. So those piecing projects allow you to make significant progress on your projects while not getting bored because you can switch back and forth between them as you need to, to keep your interest up. Um, you can kind of gauge how much sewing is left on your projects. Uh, for instance, if you're bringing a brand new project you haven't started yet, you may not need to bring three piecing projects because you have a lot to do on the two you're bringing. Um, but if you're bringing a project that's close to being done, um, maybe you just need to sew the blocks together or add some sashing, um, you might want to bring three piecing projects um, to fill in when you kind of complete one of those projects. And then the types of projects are up to you. Uh, there, I feel like there's like two 
kind of thought processes <laughs> around it. And one is that you can bring, you know, all really easy quilts. Maybe they have like repeated blocks or really simple piecing. So you can make a lot of progress. Um, even if, you know, you're stopping to talk to others or you're grabbing snacks. Um, and then like a second camp of people seems to bring like a harder project or like an older UFO maybe that they've been kind of pushing back to the side because sewing with friends and at a retreat makes those harder or more tedious projects go a lot, seem like they go a lot quicker and you're having a lot more fun when you're sewing them. Um, so you can kind of think through these things and choose the best projects. And then I do say to bring a handwork project because it is nice to have something to work on at night um, or during a meal break, or maybe you're stopping to visit with other retreaters and you don't want your attention to be directed at your sewing machine the whole time. But if you don't do handwork, uh, maybe there's something else small you could bring that would still feel like you're making progress on something, um, such as uh, maybe you have a project that needs foundation paper piecing ripped out or blocks that you need to pin for chain piecing or maybe a quilt that needs hand binding. Sometimes having a project like that just allows you to step away from your machine. So have the best time on your retreat, Barbara. It sounds like so much fun. Um, we also have a retreat packing list online if you need it. Uh, so we will link to that in the show notes. This next question is from Jenna Coffey. She says, how is it that most every time I do a scrappy quilt, I don't feel like my stash is depleted in the least. I feel like my stash of scraps grows instead of diminishes. Uh, Jenna. I feel the exact same way as you, uh, and I bet many other quilters do too. Scraps definitely seem to just multiply overnight, uh, no matter how many scrappy quilts you're making. And kind of depending on how many other projects you're working on at a time, you may be cutting leftover fabrics from those projects into scraps at a faster rate than you can use them. Uh, it's definitely easier and faster to cut scraps down to like a usable size than it is to sew all of those scraps into a finished quilt. So if you're truly overwhelmed by your scraps uh, and you're running out of room to store them, uh, you might start looking for some creative uses for them. So for instance, I use scraps to make quilt labels for my quilts. Um, I also piece scraps into my backings to add a fun touch to the back of my quilt. Um, my favorite method is just to cut all my scraps the same size, and then I just sew them together in a long row, the length of the backing. And then I add these scrappy rows in, in between larger cuts of fabric in the backing. Um, you could also cons consider using scraps as stuffing for smaller projects, uh, maybe like pin cushions, baby toys, uh, animal beds. And if you find yourself with a lot of scraps of a specific color or size that you're just not using in your scrap quilts for some reason, uh, it's okay to donate them or throw them away or just to stop saving those sizes or colors in the future. Uh, sometimes we just gravitate towards certain colors or sizes of scraps for our patterns. So just adjusting what we save can help keep our scraps manageable and more easily used in your projects. So if you need help finding an ideal scrap saving solution, we have a fun quiz you can take online. Uh, so we will link to that in the show notes. Okay, this next question is from Kathy. She says, 
I do my quilting on a domestic machine and stick with straight stitch quilting, although I vary up the design. Mostly, I have used 80-20 blend batting. The last quilt I made, I used 100% cotton. I've been happy with the results of all of them. However, I found that when I used the 100% cotton batting, a lot of the extra batting, which surrounds the quilt top and doesn't have fabric on top of it, tends to shred and get all over my quilt. When I was finished, I had several spots where those tufts of batting were sewn into the quilting, especially in the back where I could not see it building up. This may also have happened with the 80-20 blend and I just don't recall or it wasn't as bad. Okay, Kathy, this is an interesting problem. Uh, I have a few theories I'm going to throw out. Um, and if any listeners out there have advice for Kathy, just email me and we can share it on, on an upcoming show. My first thought is I'm wondering if your cotton batting had scrim. So for those who don't know, scrim is a kind of a thin stabilizer that's layered onto batting. Um, many times it's needle punched into it and it holds all the batting in place. So there's no separation or stretching. So generally batting that has scrim is more stable, uh, but not all cotton battings have scrim. So cotton batting like warm and natural, which is my personal favorite, does have scrim. And uh, just as a side note, uh, that means that the batting isn't actually 100% cotton. It's more like 90% cotton, although it may be marketed as all cotton or natural. Um, but then some cotton battings, uh, like Quilter's Dream is an example, does not have a scrim. Um, so they are actually 100% cotton, but they don't have that scrim that is holding all the batting layers together. So if you're using a batter, batting that has a scrim or that has been needle punched to hold all those fibers together, you can usually tell um, because the scrim side will have little dimples or pinholes where it's been needle punched. And that is the right side of the batting and your batting, that right side should face your quilt top when you're making your quilt sandwich. So if you face that side up, uh, you'll actually have less bearding on the back of the quilt, just when the batting might pull through the quilt's fibers and cause fuzzies. Um, so my advice is to just make sure you're using a cotton batting with a scrim if you're having problems and just that you're or orienting your batting the right way in that quilt sandwich. But like I said, if any other quilters have ideas or you've experienced this, please let me know so we can share with everyone. Okay, we're going to take a quick ad break, but we will be right back to answer more questions. Welcome back. Let's get back to these listener questions. So this next question is from Greta Van Ert. She says, is the fabric you get at a big box store the same as you get at a specialty quilt store? Specifically, I find Kona at both locations, but I'm somewhat suspicious it, it may not be the same quality. On the same note, I have bought Hobbs batting at both a quilt store and a big box store. I assumed the 80-20 blend was the same, but recently found a tag on the bolt from the Nash national chain store saying it required quilting every four inches, not 10 inches like I've seen on tags at the local shops. Ooh, Greta's asking the hard questions. So this definitely isn't the first time someone's suspected that uh, 
those fabrics might not be the same. Um, actually, a few years ago, uh, these kind of accusations were spreading online in such a way that some of the fabric companies actually released statements saying there is absolutely no difference in the fabric they sell to quilt stores versus what they sell to big box stores. Um, and I am inclined to just believe that. But uh, of course, if anyone listening today has any insider info to share, uh, email me so so we can know the actual answer. Um, but as for your batting question, uh, on the Hobbs website, it does say that their 80-20 blend needs quilting every four inches. So perhaps just the quilt shop had labeled it wrong or they were actually two different types of batting. So um, I wish I had a better answer for you. I just don't know exactly uh, you know, if if the batting or the fabric is different, I I would guess no, but maybe someone else out there knows for sure. Okay, Greta had another question and she says, uh, I have a baby lock crescendo. I bought it so I could learn to quilt some of my own projects. I'm having issues with it skipping stitches, breaking the top thread or pulling the bobbin thread up into the needle. Is this a tension issue or an operator issue? Um, or is this a timing issue that needs professional service? As it stands, I'm not able to do free motion with any level of success since every time I'm moving the fabric diagonally, it's either skipping stitches or breaking the thread. Um, so I guess my first question would be, if you can sew a straight seam on your machine with no problems, uh, there's probably nothing wrong with the machine that would need professional help. Um, so it, it's more likely to be a tension issue. Um, but I would stop into the shop or the dealer you bought the machine from and kind of explain the problem and see if they can help. Uh, sometimes when you buy a new machine, they offer a free class to learn how to use it. Um, or it has a warranty for limited limited time. So definitely take advantage of that if, if it came with that. Um, and they may know right away what needs to happen to help you be successful in quilting because uh, they are they know those machines inside and out. They would definitely would be able to help and know more of the problem you're experiencing. Um, I also would just check your machine's manual if you hadn't already to see if you're just setting the machine up properly for free motion um, or if the machine has a preferred thread. Um, sometimes the manuals list that and because some machines just work better with certain brands of thread. Um, assuming it's a tension issue, uh, you may want to play around a little with settings and just keep a piece of paper on hand to write down the settings you try. So you can slowly adjust the tension, then practice the quilting, and then just make a note if that's, that tension setting seems better or worse, and then just keep adjusting accordingly until you find that magic setting. Um, but really, there's so many different factors that can be at play when things go wrong with machine quilting. So it definitely would be best to chat with a professional or take a class if you can. Okay, this next question is from Roxanne Lowe. She asks, are there places to find older fabrics? I'm notorious for purchase, purchasing a fabric or a collection with good intentions, then setting it aside. Months or years later, <laughs> when I want to use the fabric, I find I didn't buy enough or I want more of the collection. Where can I look? I usually Google the designer, collection, or manufacturer, but I'm not always successful in finding what I want. Is there a magical place out there where old collections are waiting for me? Well, if there is a magical 
place, Google is definitely it. Uh, you're absolutely doing it right by searching for the designer, the fabric collection name, and manufacturer. And Google should bring up all the rele relevant results. Um, usually I have the best luck when those results are from quilt shops or Etsy. Um, I think the overall problem is that some fabric manufacturers come out with like a crazy number of new fabric collections every year. And most shops just don't have the money or the space to buy everything or buy enough inventory. So newer collections sell out fast. So our best advice is to always err on the side of caution. And if you truly find a fabric you love, especially if you think you would use it as like a quilt backing, if you might make decor to match a quilt, um, or if you just love it as like a neutral background print, um, one that could easily be used in other projects, uh, always buy more than what you need. Um, I've also seen some people have luck posting a picture of an older fabric on social media or in a quilting Facebook group asking if anyone has leftovers in their stash they would sell. Uh, sometimes quilters bought too much of a certain print and would be happy to sell it to you or do a trade. So it's always worth asking. And if you're on Instagram, you can post what fabrics you're looking for with the hashtag get your quilty wishes granted. And that helps others find what fabric you're looking for and send it to you. So I've done that a few times over the years where someone on that hashtag was looking for a fabric that I had in my stash and I didn't necessarily love that fabric. So I shipped it off to them. Okay, Roxanne had another question. She says, I am a washer. I wash my fabrics before using them, but sometimes I want to use those unwashed fabrics, usually a pre-cut. Will my quilts be wonky if I combine washed and unwashed fabrics? So the easy answer is that, uh, yes, you can absolutely mix washed and unwashed fabrics. I do it all the time and never have any issues. Um, but there are just a few things you can do to make sure nothing goes wrong in the process. So when you're quilting the quilt, make sure your quilting lines are what your batting recommends to eliminate shrinking. So if your batting calls for quilting every four inches, make sure you're doing that, uh, maybe even a little tighter, and that should help keep all your fabrics, even those previously unwashed, from getting wonky after it's been washed that first time. The second thing you can do is to wash your quilt with color catchers to catch any loose dye from those unwashed fabrics. Um, and also, make sure you're washing with cold water, and then you're air drying the quilt to prevent any shrinking. Although I have to say, I am a big fan of the quilt crinkle that comes from fabrics shrinking in the wash. So if you like that look, feel free to dry the quilt on tumble dry low to get that soft and cozy look in your quilts. Okay, Roxanne had one more question. She says, quilt borders, which do you sew on first? Left, right, or top and bottom? Or does it matter as long as the borders are the same? So it's absolutely a matter of preference, Roxanne. Uh, most quilts I see, um, and this is also the preference of our entire staff, uh, is that you sew the borders to the sides of the quilts first and then add the top and bottom borders. And this just helps the quilt feel a little more balanced because instead of having two very short borders at the top and bottom and then two very long borders on the sides, uh, assuming you're making a rectangle quilt, um, 
you'll have borders that are cut at a more similar even length. Uh, but something you may want to consider uh, if sewing on the top and bottom borders first will allow you to cut borders from your yardage without having to piece them, that can actually be preferable for some quilters because, well, one, it's less work. Um, or if you're using a border print that has a really distinct pattern, like maybe a stripe, where you might have trouble lining up the pattern if you had to piece those, it can actually be easier to just add it to the top and bottom first to avoid piecing those two fabrics together. So it really is just a matter of preference. It doesn't matter to the quilt, um, just really what you prefer. And uh, a lot of quilters do prefer adding it to the sides first. Okay, one more ad break we have to take, and then we're back with a few more questions. Welcome back. So we have a few more great questions. So this one is from Amy Bion, Bion. Sorry, I'm saying your last name wrong. Uh, she says, I have sewn for over 35 years, uh, but I am relatively new to quilting. I began making basic patchwork quilts for family and friends in January of 2022. I have completed six quilts and I'm at a point where I would like to challenge myself beyond the basic block quilt. What designs or patterns do you recommend that I use for my next couple quilts? Amy, how exciting that you've started to quilt. Isn't it just the best? And I'm so impressed that you've already made six quilts that it sounds like you're a pro already. <laughs> So there are so many options for challenging quilts, um, but my best advice is to find a quilt you love, no matter how hard or easy it may seem, and just dive right in. Um, I've heard of people tackling a double wedding ring quilt for their first quilt or do, you know, doing a big foundation pe paper piecing pattern right away. So really, as long as you love the pattern and you're excited about it, you will find success with any difficulty level or technique. So I find a lot of inspiration on Pinterest or Instagram for quilts, and I'm always saving things that I want to come back to and make. Um, I'd also suggest trying a block of the month or a sampler quilt. That's what I did when I first started quilting, and it introduced me to such a wide range of techniques and blocks, and I learned so much. Um, and I also discovered some techniques and blocks I loved um, and some that I probably wouldn't ever attempt again. <laughs> Uh, if you're interested, you can actually join our Blast from the Past quilt. Uh, it's free. We're, we're about halfway through now, but it would be easy to catch up. And so far, we've explored like 15 different blocks, a lot of different types of units and techniques, uh, you know, tiny, tiny pieces, templates. We have foundation paper piecing coming up. Um, and it's kind of hard for me to suggest a specific pattern because there's just so many amazing ones out there. Uh, and it's also hard to judge difficulty because what's easy for one person can be a challenge for others. Um, but in general, like log cabin quilts, star block quilts, Irish chain quilts, nine patch quilts, those are some very popular types of blocks for quilters. And there are so many pretty ones out there. So just find one you love and start sewing. Um, and I will link to our website, allpeoplequilt.com, which has thousands of free patterns. Um, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes if you need inspiration. Okay, this next question is from Sarah H. She says, I recently received a red and white quilt top pieced by my husband's grandmother and mother. 
The top is in four separate pieces. One of the four pieces is already quilted. I assume to make quilting on a smaller machine easier. Is this a common way to quilt? I am trying to figure out how to connect the four units if I were to continue the process as they intended. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on quilting in sections. Sarah, how special to have the quilt top pieced by your husband's family. Uh, it sounds so beautiful and it will be so meaningful once you finish it. So the technique the original quilters were doing is called quilt as you go. It's a very popular way to finish a quilt. And you're right. It makes it much easier to quilt a large quilt on a smaller machine if you quilt it in manageable parts and then you connect those pieces to finish the quilt. So we actually have a great video on our website that shows this technique much better than I could explain in a podcast. <laughs> so we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, quilt as you go is always something I've wanted to try uh, because usually I just stick to pretty simple quilting on my quilts. Um, but quilt as you go means that I could do fancier or more intricate quilting um, and it seems less intimidating that way. So uh, it's on my to-do list to try. So Sarah, I hope you find success using this technique to finish that quilt. This next question is from Patricia Milovina. She says, why don't fabric manufacturers put a colorway number or skew on the fabric selvage? I can't be the only one who has a piece of fabric in my stash that I need to buy more of. And I've gone online and ordered two or three fabrics that appear to be the same color, but alas, they are not the same as what I have at home. I'm not referring to solids, but rather prints, florals, checks, dots that may have a specific background color or a line that may have different reds, blues, greens, and no notation on the salvage as a clue to what the actual color is for ordering purposes. The little color dots on the salvage may help when buying in person, but no help at all when ordering online. Is there a reason that color coding can't be noted on the salvage? Uh, Patricia, you are voicing a problem that many of us feel. Uh, so many quilters I know have had issues when trying to repurchase fabric online, uh, you know, thinking they had the correct color and finding it doesn't match when you finally see it in person. It is a frustrating problem. I have no idea why fabric manufacturers don't do this. Um, you know, I don't know if it increases the printing cost, if they reuse SKU numbers after a certain amount of time. Um, if the way it's cut off the bolts of fabric means the skew doesn't appear in every piece of fabric. Um, I do have to say that some of the fabric I have in my stash does list the skew numbers on it. Um, they're older Northcott and Benertex fabric lines, so I'm not entirely sure if they still do that or they only do it for certain fabric lines, but it seems like some companies do prioritize that. Um, I'm afraid I just don't have an answer for you, but you know, the solution is always to write down the original fabric we purchase either on the salvage or in a project tracker notebook so that if we need to rebuy them, we know what we need. Um, it's tedious, it's annoying, but it is a good habit to have. This next question is from Linda Kelly. She says, my question is about those of us who use a domestic machine to machine quilt. I usually stabilize my blocks with a stitch in the ditch by using a walking foot with either invisible nylon or a very fine thread before I begin free motion quilting. I find that this prevents tucks on the back of my quilt. This also allows me to remove the pins in each block so that I can quilt without stopping. Most of the quilters I watch on YouTube do not do this. 
I was just wondering if any of you there at APQ quilt your own quilts on a domestic machine, and do you take the time to stabilize the quilt? Thanks for your question, Linda. Uh, I did ask around to our staff and no one stabilizes their blocks first before machine quilting on their domestic machines, but everyone has such a different style for quilting their quilts. Uh, and the best way you can machine quilt is one that makes you comfortable and confident. So no reason to change the way you're doing things if you're having success and you love the look on your finished quilts. The method you're using sounds really smart. Uh, definitely, it's nice to be able to remove all the pins from an area so you don't have to worry about them all quilting. Uh, so maybe more people should try your method. <laughs> I also think the machine you use and your pinning method can factor into some of this. Like, for instance, the machine I use to quilt my quilts it just works in a way that I don't get tucks. Um, in fact, I don't even use a walking foot. I pin base much less than is recommended. So that's what I found that works for me and my machine and, you know, what, what works for the thread I use and the stitchings I use. But I know that when I show pictures of myself quilting to others, I always get asked about why I don't use pins very much and what machine foot I'm using. Um, so it's great that there are no hard rules about machine quilting. Uh, there's only suggestions, but really we all can find a way that works best for us and we can just do our own thing with it and do whatever works for you. Okay, and the last question on the show is from Claire Francichetti. Oh, I hope I'm saying that right. She says, each year I organize a themed hallway challenge for the Etopacoque Quilt Guild in Toronto, Canada. Last year, the theme was connection. We got 23 very creative submissions from guild members. This year's theme is picture this, where quilts must be inspired or based on a picture or image. Here's my question. How do I motivate people to participate and submit their work? We have such talented members, but there are many quilters who don't believe their work is good enough to be shown. This kind of makes me sad because they have great talent, but won't ever hear the accolades if it's not shared. Not only that, but their work could inspire others. Help. How can I help people decide to show their beautiful work? Oh, Claire, I love this idea so much. So I have a few suggestions on how to get more people participating. The first is to host a small event with the guild to share details about the challenge. You could have past participants speak about their positive experiences. You could answer any questions people have um, and, you know, encourage others. You could have coffee and some snacks. You know, these small social events can be a casual and fun way to kind of spread the word. Uh, you could also have the attendees brainstorm some ideas of what they could do for their theme to get them excited. I know that when I have a fun idea and others around me are telling me to explore it or try it, I can't wait to get home and start right away. You could also personally email people asking them to participate. So sometimes in situations like this, you know, we always assume someone else will participate, someone else will do it better. So we immediately write off our own talent because we think like, what's the point? Uh, but reaching out to people individually can help overcome that. So if you email, you could invite them to join the challenge, tell them you enjoy their work that they bring to maybe your guild meetings or that they're sharing on social media. 
And you can give a little personal detail, such as um, maybe I saw your beautiful photos from your trip to Montana this summer. Like, wouldn't that be fun to turn into a quilt for this challenge? Um, or maybe something like uh, you post the most beautiful photos of your garden. Like, wouldn't those colors be spectacular in a quilt? And of course, if your guild has too many people to individual email. Uh, start just with a few you know the most um, and have other past participants or, you know, guild members reach out to a few others they know well. Uh, this technique has worked for me a few times. Uh, in the past, I had a friend who hosted like pop-up art shows around the city based on themes. And twice she ended up emailing me saying she wanted more participation uh, and what I submit a design and I hate disappointing others and I wanted to help a friend. So I absolutely submitted a design and ended up having a blast at the show. So just know that like these type of events slowly grow. So even if you're just getting a few more people to participate every year, those people will keep coming back for future challenges. They'll help spread the word so that your challenges will continue to grow year after year. Good luck, Claire. Uh, please keep me updated on how it went and send me pictures. So thanks to everyone for submitting their questions. I always love these shows. Uh, so we're planning ahead for our Halloween show and I want spooky stories of when things went wrong in your sewing space. Uh, so if you have a quilting fail to share, please send me an email at apqpodcast at meredith.com. I will list that email in the show notes. I have a few of my own spooky stories to share, but I just love hearing from our listeners. Everyone have a great week.